Good evening. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to uh, be able to proclaim God's word with you, to be able to study. Uh, If you know me well, uh, my wife can probably vouch for this as well. I love getting to the word of God and studying it deeply and proclaiming it. I don't want to call it a hobby, uh, but I really do enjoy it. It's, uh, It's something in life that God has brought the opportunity with, and I'm very excited for that. I'm very grateful that pastor's given me the opportunity to do this as well. We're going to be in 1 Kings tonight, 1 Kings chapter 1, 1 Kings chapter 1, timeless truths from the kings. I've really begun to fall in love with the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings because brought out are so many principles that we find throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, and now we get to see examples of them in actual lives, in uh, kings' lives many times. And but before we start this kind of this un- unveiling this story here that's going on in 1 Kings, this narrative, I want to be very clear, all right? I do not believe that Israel and the church are the same, okay? Um, do, not, do not draw conclusions from when we see similarities, all right? Pastor Joe does not believe that they're the same. I think they're uh, very distinct, but I think there are similarities in this, that Israel had... Uh, was serving a God who was holy, righteous, and we serve that same God today. And that, uh, that Israel had the responsibility of serving and living holy and living righteously as we have today. And so I don't necessarily see this as a book of parallels between Israel and the church. I do see it as a book of similarities between what Israel is struggling with and what Christians can struggle with today as well. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we kind of uh, go through this narrative here of really the history of Israel uh, is really what we're looking at, the nation of Israel and uh, throughout the the monarchy and the kings. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's start with a little background before we start into the book. We all love the background, right? We all love the uh, intro to things, but it really does shed light on where Israel is at at this point and where we're jumping in in the middle here in Israel's history in 1 Kings. 1 and 2 Kings are actually one book in Hebrews, uh, in, the, in Hebrew, and in uh, translating it into English, they've been made two books because of the length of it, um, but they flow as if they were one book. I mean, you could really read 1 and 2 Kings as if they are one book. Uh, and together, these two books cover a period about 400 years Uh, in the nation of Israel, approximately 970 B.C. to 586 B.C., so just under 400 years of history here in these two books. And 1 Kings starts with the kingdom of Israel in all of its glory. King David is still there. Uh, All the glory God has bestowed upon it. God's about to bless Solomon. And 2 Kings ends in Israel completely in ruin. Something happens along the way. I mean, there are, we, have to, we have to see what is happening, what God's doing in, this people, in these people's lives. And this book is a true account of a nation that starts with such promise and prosperity, but turns into division and decay very, very fast. Many accounts in 1 Kings are paralleled with the book of 2 Chronicles, you may know. First uh, and Second Samuel are paralleled with 1 Chronicles, with the exception of the lengthy genealogy in 1 Chronicles. And First and Second Kings are paralleled with 2 Chronicles, with the exception that 2 Chronicles doesn't follow the northern kingdom of Israel. 
But throughout this study, we may find ourselves in 2 Chronicles because they're parallel. They can shed light on what's happening in the history of Israel here. Uh, And so, really we see a united kingdom turn into a divided kingdom in the the book of 1 Kings. And and we're going to see several truths through this. Um, And when we look at the author, the author's unknown of 1 Kings... Jewish tradition, some people say it was Jeremiah, but other than the fact that Jews, years after it was written, had a tradition that it might be Jeremiah, we don't have solid proof of the author. Uh, It might have been whoever the author was, they frequently cited uh, and referenced historical records of their time. Um, So almost like our history books of today, this this author took actual historical events uh, uh, from some of those sources that they had at the time. And we'll see some of those as we kind of run through. But to fully understand our study, we have to understand the history of Israel for a little bit. And so I know this is very small, but hopefully you can see a little bit here. The red is the timeline that we are in, all right? Uh, We know the history of Israel. Uh, God promises Abraham a nation to be a father of a nation. We go through the period of the patriarchs. And then they, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel is starting to form in number, right, in people, but they don't yet have a land, you could say. And so this is progressing the history of Israel. You see the wilderness there and then the conquest of getting to, into that promised land. And then we have the period of the judges, right, where Israel is in this rut of uh, disobeying God, God bringing punishment, repenting, God bringing a judge to help uh, with that, and it's just, just this circular effect for some 40 years of this spiraling um, uh, in the book of Judges, in the time of Judges. And then we get to Israel's monarchy, um, and it begins when the children of Israel ask Samuel for an earthly ruler. And you remember the, the problem God had with that? It was that they were no longer relying as him, on him as their ruler, but now they were wanting something else. They... they um, They weren't happy enough, they weren't satisfied enough with God being their sole leader. And that was really how they were distinct for many years. God was clearly the leader of Israel. That's how they were known as they're going through this conquest and the judges. And now uh, they asked for an earthly ruler. God was displeased but gave them what they wanted. And King Saul becomes king. And then we see King David, who's talked about through the books of Samuel. And now we pick up at the end of David's life. So, very brief history. uh, Not too deep, but that brings us up to speed of where we're going to jump in uh, this evening. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 1. We're just going to read the first ten verses here this evening. 1 Kings chapter 1. Now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes... Because, uh, but he got no heat. Wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. So they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coast of Israel, and found Abishag a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. Verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, 
and the and with Abiathar the priest, and they uh, and they following Adonijah helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Rei and the mighty men which belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah, and Adonijah slew sheep and oxen uh, and fat cattle by the stone of Zaholeth, which is by Enrogel. And called all his brethren and king's sons and all the men of Judah, the king's servants, but Nathan the prophet and Benaiah and the mighty men and Solomon his brother he called not. We're going to see some timeless truths throughout tonight, but one of the things that's interesting is that the first part of our study here is a transition for uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, Again, this is not a parallel with the church. And the reason for that is because the kings of Israel are called on to be rulers, uh, to to rule with a mighty hand. And uh, even though we are in somewhat of a transition, pastors are called to be servants, uh, to serve and lead in that way. Uh, and And you see, obviously, in the kings too, the best leaders were servants. Uh, but it is no way is it a parallel, but we can see some truths from this. So, different responses to transition. That's what we're seeing here. There's transition happening in the children of Israel's life, in the history here. And uh, it starts with Adonijah, the opportunist. And that's what we're going to look at here this evening. Have you ever found yourself wanting to push your own agenda? Um, or maybe it was at work and you felt as though something was being done the wrong way? Or something was being neglected and you had the answer. You were the one with the answer. Maybe it's a parent that has their kid in a school. And the parent would like for their ideas to be, he- or to be heard by the school. To better fit their family. To better fit their child. Whatever it might be. And unfortunately, maybe it is a church. Uh, where you do not agree with the decision or a standard. And you feel as though you have the answer. So you begin speaking with people behind the scenes. And your agenda is beginning to come out. In college, I joined a society, and in college, a society, you you join a society, you do competitions together, you have chapels together, Um, and so I joined a society called the Hurricanes, very fierce name, right? And so uh, we were a society, and I joined that, and I remember my my freshman and sophomore year sitting in society, and now this this story in my life um, is... I'm just going to be honest with you, is a failure. And that's why I'm sharing it tonight. And so for freshman and sophomore year, I'm sitting under these student leaderships, right? And freshman and sophomore year, I'm like, man, I I was getting really fed up with some of the hypocrisy in the leadership. Like, why is he preaching to us every week when he's not even paying attention in regular chapels, whatever it might be? And I was getting fed up with how things were done um, and the opportunities that we didn't have or that were neglected, and uh, I would voice them with my friends that were in this society uh, just between us, and uh, it came to the point where I had voiced them so much that uh, towards the end of my sophomore year, my friends encouraged me to run for society president. Joe, if you feel this way, um, push your agenda, be president, and then you can make it perfect, right? Then you can um, do all of these things that are going to work out great, and so um, uh, during that time, I was like, yeah, uh, I will run for president, and uh, we will turn this society around for the glory of God, right? That wasn't my attitude, and I can see that back then, but I might have thrown that out as an excuse to run. So I run for society president, and um, 
only by the grace of God, because I was struggling with uh, some pride during this time, which we're going to see. Um, I was elected president, and it came time for me to push my perfect agenda, right? When you, uh, when you look at uh, presidential debates and elections, you're, you hear agenda a lot, right? Their agenda. So I had my agenda. We were going to make the society great again, um, and all these different things. And I learned very quickly at the start of my junior year, as I was society president, that there were freshmen and sophomores looking at me and having the exact same attitude I had towards those previous society presidents, saying, well, Joe doesn't do this in his own life, or whatever it might be, and looking at me the same way. And then I started to realize that the college actually had rules and regulations that the president had to abide by, and that's why some things weren't actually done or experienced, whatever it might be. And I started to realize, well, I don't have liberty to do that either. And I remember talking to my friend very early on in the year, uh, and I remember the, the Lord just breaking me. I remember being in tears as I remembered the attitude that I had the previous two years. Instead of being a part of society and pushing the glory of God forward, I was hindering that. My attitude towards society was hindering that. I wasn't jumping in where I could serve, being humble, whatever it might be, and God began to, began to really do a work. And by the grace of God, uh, we were able to see some amazing things done that year, but God had to really humble me. God had to really bring me to a point that said, it's not your agenda, Joe. It's not these things that are going to be uh, glorious for the cause of Christ. It's someone that is going to be humble before me. Pride is a very cunning uh, thing, and pride manifests itself in many different ways. All right, we can, we can talk about pride tonight, but the fact of the matter is pride uh, disguises itself in so many different ways. Um, and we're going to talk about a few of those tonight. But tonight we're going to see that in a time of transition, pride is our greatest enemy. And during times of transition and vulnerability, God's people must rely on him and not themselves. That's what Adonijah is going to teach us here tonight by his actions. The next couple of weeks we're going to look at different responses to this time of transition in Israel. And I pray that tonight would be helpful as we face even transition here, as we face vulnerable times in our lives, our family's lives, uh, our church's life, whatever it might be, that this would be helpful in understanding a little bit. The first response that we're going to see here tonight is a man named Adonijah. We're going to call him Adonijah the Opportunist. Now, when you think of that word, maybe it's not fully negative, right? Taking an opportunity, that's not necessarily wrong, but uh, an opportunist goes a little bit farther than that and sees an opportunity to promote self and sees, oh, here's an opportunity where now I can get in, now my agenda can get done or whatever it might be. That's what an opportunist is. That's exactly what Adonijah is doing uh, here. And so... The first thing I want to see is that Adonijah sought to push his agenda. This opportunity sought to push himself when the leadership was most vulnerable. apologize if the words are small tonight. I will end up reading through everything that pops up uh, so that we can understand it. This is in the first four verses here. You can see what uh, it, the nation of Israel is very vulnerable right now. Now the king, now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Right? The nation of Israel is in a very vulnerable time. It's a time of transition that many people thought would never come. All right? I, I'm sure the people of Israel thought King David is going to live forever. I mean, God is blessing us. 
Um, I know there's been some hiccups along the way, but this man, King David, is God's man. And uh, we are prospering under King David. And I'm sure for years, the people of Israel didn't even really give thought, didn't want to think of what was going to come next in Israel, because they had just hoped that maybe in the back of their mind, King David would live forever. He would always, this was always what Israel was going to be like. No change would take place. But they're, they're, they're smitten with reality here. David's getting old. He is sick. He's no longer able to do the things that he used to do, whatever it might be. And a time of transition, a time of change, is starting to hit Israel right between the eyes. And they're facing it now. And we see a couple of different responses. But we know that this is a time of vulnerability because of David's state here. Right, the first thing that we see is David is old. Scholars believe that David is 70 years old at this time because of 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, tells us that David was 30 when he began to reign, and he ran, reigned for 40 years. We're about to see David's uh, going to die in chapter 2 very soon after this account. Now, before you go stoning me, all right, hear me out. I am not the one calling 70 years old, old tonight, okay? All right, this is what God says in verse 1. Now King David was old. Uh, that, is, that is not my words, okay? Uh, don't put words in my mouth. But I would say this, 70 years old, um, many people at 70 years old can still do things. I mean, David's bedridden here. Uh, he can't do much at all. And so I would, that kind of took me back a little bit. I was like, oh, 70 you know, I, I was reading this thinking, man, maybe he's in his later 80s, 90s, and he's, he just can't operate the way he used to, whatever it might be. But you have to think of David's life for a little bit and how many wars he was um, involved in and, and how many times he had to uh, intercede on the behalf of these people that just couldn't get, get it right or whatever it might be. And uh, so you have to understand that about David uh, when you see this. Um, I remember when I was a kid and my dad got his first gray hair. And all of us kids were, wanted to joke about it, right? Bug him that he was getting old, that he was getting gray hairs now. And I'll never forget what he always told us. He said, well, the reason I have gray hairs is because I have six kids uh, that are uh, keeping me on my toes, that, are, uh, that take all hands on deck, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm, rem- I'm reminded of several things I've seen in the past of Presidents of the United States, all right, what they looked like before and after. And you really can't say it aged them. I mean, it is a stressful thing. David's doing this for 40 years. He's a man of war. He's in and out of battles. I think it would be naive, naive to say he didn't have injuries along the way and was wounded and different things like that. And so th- all these, I think, put into play David's state right now. All right, the Bible says that uh, he, he is older in years, and he's sick. This is obvious through uh, the first four verses here. David had a circulatory problem and had trouble keeping warm. That's what uh, it, it means when he got no heat. All right, That's what the Bible's saying. That is what Scripture is speaking of here in verse, uh, the first four verses. So David's leaders and friends grab a young maid, and um, I would remember her name. She's going to come back up again here in 1 Kings. She's going to play an important role here in the future. Uh, But David's leaders found this young maid who was a virgin to help keep David warm. Now, this seems kind of odd to us, uh, but actually Josephus, who was a a Jewish historian in Galen, um, shed some light on this practice and actually said this was an actual medical practice back in the day. 
Um, you know, we have different medical practices uh, for this type of thing today. Uh, we have multiple other ways to help uh, out with this. Uh, today we have blankets that heat up, you know, electrical blankets. Um, there's a process for blood to be drawn and warmed and recirculated through the body called blood warming. Um, airway rewarming is the use of a mask or a tube that warms the airways. And there's many other solutions that we have today. So you have to take it back in this time. This is actually a practice that uh, King David, he's just, his, his temperature is not rising. They, they can't get him warm. And so this was a practice that they would do, bring in a young maid to try to help with the body heat a little bit. It's interesting to, to see as well that it says David did not know her. I mean, there's nothing sensual about this. This is medical for its purposes. And so we see that David is older, he's very sick, and the reality is that David's on his deathbed. He's dying. Uh, in chapter 2, he's about to die Um, And so this is a very vulnerable time, right? This is when Anijah takes um, action with this very vulnerable time in the nation of Israel. Listen to me tonight. Satan is very smart. Satan today wants to destroy everything about Christ. He wants to destroy the family. He wants to destroy the individual Christian. And you better believe he wants to destroy the church. He's trying as hard as he can. We have to be very careful. I truly believe he looks for opportunities to destroy each one of those things. And vulnerable times are when we may be most susceptible. Or a little bit more where he's trying and sees where he can get in. There's a change happening in maybe your family. Where a dad has to work the night shift and the family begins to get overwhelmed with business. Satan is looking to pull you away from God as a family. Tempt you to take God out of the family unit as a dad begins to slowly maybe not come to church, bring their kids to church, not read devotions with their family. Satan's looking for those vulnerable times in the family unit. Maybe it's uh, personally you've been busy, lack of sleep, lack of time to yourself, whatever the case may be, Satan may start to have some victory at vulnerable times in your life. Unfortunately, uh, Miss Emily and I have been part of several church transitions throughout the years. And at uh, one of a church's most vulnerable times, transitioning from one pastor to another, I can sit and give you example after example where Satan had victory and dividing people. Now, I can also stand before you tonight and see transitions that took place in our life where God's people didn't let Satan. And it worked out. And God is blessing. But that's a vulnerable time as well. I think Satan here wanted Israel. I really do. I mean, they are coming off of King David, the man that we read about that had, uh, uh, he was a man after God's own heart. And transition's about to happen. I believe that when David was ruling, Satan probably saw it, and although he might have had a couple small victories, a couple victories, for the most part, Satan was suppressed in this time with King David. And now he's looking at this transition as an opportunity. And he wanted to strike fast because guess who's coming up next? Guess who God's already pronounced the next king? Solomon. Guess what God has already said Solomon's going to do? Make God, who Satan hates, a glorious temple. A glorious building that nations around the world are going to be pointed to the one true God. I think Satan wanted Israel. I think he wanted to get into this vulnerable time. 
Satan saw an opening and gets in Adonijah's life with a self-centeredness and pride. Opportunists happen today as well. You know, as I've sat on church staffs, as uh, families have bombarded a new pastor with their um, agendas or whatever it might be before he's even established himself, or watched people take advantage of a pastor who is about to leave, or uh, whatever it might be, and sat in those type of things, and everybody wants to say, we really need this to happen that's going to better suit yourself or our families, whatever it might be. And honestly, usually they're very small things. And transition in churches begins to come some of the most divisive, self-centered, godless times in a church. And we've seen that in our lives. Beware of Satan. Be careful in vulnerable times. Pride can completely destroy units like a family, like a Christian life, like a church. And he's especially going to try in vulnerable times. We need to make sure that we have a humble attitude. The second thing that I see here is that Adonijah acted as if he knew better than God. All right, that's how Adonijah's acting here. You see Adonijah start to take action in verse 5. It's actually very clear here that Adonijah knew God had chosen Solomon to be the next king. And if you see that in 1 Kings chapter 2, Adonijah is speaking with Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and he reveals that he already knew Solomon was supposed to be the next king. And he says this, Now thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should reign. Howbeit the kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's. And then he says this, For it was his from the Lord. Adonijah knew. David already made this announcement. God made it very clear. Solomon was going to be the next king. But Adonijah, um, in this transition, thought he knew better for the nation of Israel. God had made it very clear. um, And he thought he he knew better. But Adonijah knew God's will and decided that his idea made more sense, made more human, logical sense, and was better. Now, let's not start hating on Adonijah here at this point, because um, he actually has some legitimate things about the whole transition here that made human logical sense. All right, Most of the time, we want to make human logical sense out of uh, what the answer is to a transition or to anything. Um, But whether it's this man doesn't seem right or uh, this man seemed to fit exactly, whatever it might be, Adonijah has some human logical things that might be uh, influencing him here. One of them is Adonijah was the oldest living son of David. All right, Most of Israel was probably like, all right, Amnon's gone, Absalom's gone, Um, Kiliab, Daniel, uh, there's no record of him during this time. And so it's believed that uh, he probably passed in battle or in sickness early in age because not even close to like 10 years within this time is he in a re- in, uh, recorded of. And so Adonijah is the oldest living son of David, even though he was the fourth born son. And uh, talking about the monarchy of Israel, right? The children of Israel probably thought logically, all right, it's Adonijah, right? He's the oldest son right now. We're looking at the prince, whatever it might be. And for years, birthrights were given to the oldest son throughout the Old Testament and the best of the land or resources from a father, whatever it might be. And when it came to being the next king, logically people had that thought process as well with Adonijah here. 
The other thing is Adonijah was around 35 years old, while Solomon was about 20 years old. Um, if you're Israel here, there's, I mean, you're making human logical sense out of this. You're trying to process it. Let's have the young Solomon lead our nation while the older, more experienced in battle and dealing with people is passed over. I mean, they're, they're trying to make sense of this. The nation is, Adonijah is, and uh, even today, the age of Solomon would put radars up in most people's mind as it should. Um, and Solomon is young, doesn't have enough experience, won't be able to handle this situation. People won't respect him. Yet we're going to see in our study just how perfect a fit Solomon was. Uh, because he was at a point where he had to rely on the Lord. Adonijah trusted too much in his own experience and his own skills. Solomon knew he was young. Solomon knew he was probably not as experienced. So what did he ask for? Wisdom. I'm getting ahead of myself because that's in a couple chapters later in, in, a, few, in a few. But Adonijah is just trying to make sense of this whole transition. The, the people of Israel are as well. And it made no logical sense to most people that Solomon would be king and not Adonijah. Yet God had already made this clear. He had already made it clear. David had already pronounced Solomon to be the next king. And Adonijah and many of the people acted as if their plan and their choice was better than God's. And we can sit back and say, how foolish. This is ridiculous. But the sad truth is, this whole ceremony that we see in verses 8 through 10 many of us might have been at because it made human logical sense that Adonijah would be the next king, even though God had already made his will clear. See, Adonijah thought and saw, thought that his, his plan was better than God. Satan has clear victory when we begin to think and act in ways that state, I, Pastor Joe, know better than God. Now, we don't actually say that exactly, right? It comes out in how we act and think. Maybe it's a husband who wakes up uh, morning after morning without taking time during the day to spend time with God and praying and reading God's word. That would say with our actions, God, I don't need you today. I have got this under control. I'm a guy and I struggle with feeling that um, I can handle something, right? My strengths, my abilities can get us through whatever it might be. Maybe it's a wife or a lady who does the same thing day after day without God. With our actions, we're saying we know better than God. It's a father who doesn't take the responsibility of making sure his kids are in church and his family is reading God's word and praying. Those actions state, God, I know better. We can do this without you. My child can be successful without your church, without your word. You see, we aren't saying exactly, I know better than God, but we are saying exactly with our actions, we know better than God. Maybe it's a church member who believes that a man is not God's will for the pastor when that church member has barely sat down to pray for God's will for the next pastor. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of this division that we've seen in the past come from people who didn't even take time to bathe the transition in prayer. It's pride. It's thinking that we know better than God. We're going to get to all of us this evening, so why don't we just do it? Maybe it's a pulpit committee member who tries to make human logic reason out of an option instead of taking every possible option to prayer and to God's Word. Hey, maybe it's a pastor who thinks they can preach week after week and deal with people's lives without God's help. 
Maybe it's a pastor that thinks because of what God has given them, the responsibility that God has placed on their life, they're somehow better than others. I mean, that's the reality of this. That's the reality of pride. We start to think and act like we know better than God. You see, Adonijah acted as if he knew better than God, and we have to be careful in vulnerable times in our schools, in our families, in our personal lives, in our church, that we rely solely on God. And not on human logic, not on what makes sense, not on someone's ability or someone's uh, strengths, whatever it might be. That's what Adonijah is following in. The next thing I think is that Adonijah begins to secretly get support of others that will help his cause. That's what's taking place here. And he's very smart with how he does it because of the people that he gets here. All right? Adonijah goes and gets the approval of Joab. And Joab uh, is on his side. Joab is David's nephew. All right? And he's several other things. But he's David's nephew. I mean, the children of Israel are watching this. And Adonijah got Joab on his side. David's own nephew. Oh, what else did Joab do? Well, he was the commander of the army of Israel under David for years. He got Joab on his side. People are starting to jump on board now. A faithful supporter of David's kingship. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 18 and chapter 20, Adonijah, or Joab is supporting David's kingship. Uh, very loyal to David. And Adonijah gets him on his side. He gets Joab here. He's being very strategic. Get Joab on your side, and even the people of Israel will be like, yeah, this is obviously uh, what is from King David, and this man has stood by his side for years. Then he gets Abiathar. Abiathar is one of the two high priests. So you get Joab, one of David's most loyal men, and then you get Abiathar, the man of God, on your side, right? And all of Israel is going to think that this is the right thing. They're starting to jump on board with this. These, Joab is an aged man. This was a strategic and no doubt uh, was the cause of others jumping on board as well. And then Adonijah gets his other brothers, obviously except Solomon, so that they can show their support as well. And what takes place in verses 5 through 9 is that Adonijah gets these men on his side and they begin to hold a ceremony, basically declaring Adonijah as the next king of Israel. That's what's taking place in our passage here tonight. So Adonijah's pride continued as he made himself feel better about it because others started to jump on board, right? I mean, if I'm Adonijah, I'm starting to feel a little bit better about going against God's will because I got Joab on my side. I got the man of God, Abiathar, on my side. I got my younger brothers on my side. I got the people of Israel on my side. And even Christians do this as well. Christians find a form of entertainment that initially they know is wrong, but if more people are okay with it, then they can cope with it much better. Hey, if others aren't going to church every service, we are all in this together. It makes it a little easier. If others don't see the need to be cautious about the filth of social media and television, that makes it easier for me to live with myself. It's as simple as a dad who begins to allow his family's standards to leave and allow work or sports or family to take the place of God himself. And they start to see it as okay because they start looking at other Christians who are doing the exact same thing. It's the Christian school teacher that doesn't like how something is done and runs to get other staff on their pity party box or whatever it might be. It's a church member who doesn't want the new pastor or the candidate and they begin to influence others instead of letting others pray and let the Holy Spirit lead. Satan can use our pride to affect others. That's the sad reality of it. 
Adonijah is not just sinning against God, but leading others to do the same. Again, all of these people didn't think God's option made sense. I mean, we can kind of cope with that as humans. But he's leading others in this charge. And then lastly, Adonijah made a vulnerable time worse because of his actions. Have you ever made something worse? All right, I, I remember when I was a teenager, we had about eight acres that we would mow, and my dad had a nice grasshopper zero-turn mower, and uh, he would let me do it occasionally. But one of the things you never want to do that needs to be done when you mow the lawn is pick up everything, right, before you mow the lawn. And so uh, as, as most guys my age, I don't know, maybe most, uh, we try to get around that as much as we can, and the smaller the item is, it's, man, I got a big zero-turn grass, grasshopper. It's not going to do damage to that. I'll just run over it anyways, or whatever it might be. And so you try it out with a small stick. You get to get a little bit bolder. You do another stick the next time, and it shoots out, and you're like, oh, this is fine. Right? It's not making anything worse at all. Uh, well, it was, and obviously you know the reality of that. But I remember one time uh, I didn't pick up, and my idea was when I came to something I obviously couldn't run over, I would just pick it up at that time, toss it to the side, keep mowing. So I had a soccer ball right in front of me. I stopped it, and uh, as a 15-year-old boy, you can't just pick it up, put it to the side. You have to do it with style, right? And uh, so I, I acted like it was a soccer game, and I booted that soccer ball as hard as I could right through my sister's window. And uh, I remember sitting there like, I just made this whole day of work so much worse. All right? It was Saturday, my dad was home, uh, and I remember just feeling like I had made the whole situation worse. Adonijah stood in the way of God's will for Israel. God had a perfect plan that was going to propel himself and Israel forward even more than during David's reign. But because of Adonijah's pride, he stepped in the way of that plan. Adonijah started division in the leadership, Joab and Abiathar and the people of Israel. Some began to take up Adonijah's cause. Adonijah led others in trusting human reason instead of trusting God. And Adonijah did not submit to God's will. He's making this whole vulnerable situation worse. Can I tell you something tonight? Pride makes every situation worse. Pride makes every situation sinful. Pride makes every situation much worse than it needs to be. We need humility. Father who isn't willing to give time for church and God, it will affect your family. Teacher, pastor who isn't willing to be humble before God and rely on Him, it will affect your ministry. And church member that has opinions and agendas that are of your own being and not God, and you decide to care more about differences than spending hours and hours in prayer, it will affect this time of transition here at Eagle Heights. So let's conclude tonight with this. What's our timeless truth? Pride destroys the work of God. Adonijah is the first of many in the book of 1 Kings to live selfishly. I, the, the sad reality is we're going to see this over and over. It, it's a good thing we're starting with it because we can just touch on it when we read through these stories and not every week have to be hit with pride. right? Um, but that's the sad reality that we're seeing here. All of these things start to take place in Adonijah's life. And throughout the book of 1 Kings, we will see how disastrous this can be. Adonijah lived for himself, and that was evident in his actions. And had Adonijah and others throughout 1 Kings have simply submitted to God's will and not their own, we may have a different story in the book of 1 Kings. We may have a different outcome. The opportunist says, how can I use this situation, transition, to promote myself and get what I want? 
You know, opportunists usually are acting without being asked, focusing the transition on themselves, and they end up making the transition worse. So our timeless truth tonight is pride destroys the work of God. So what can we learn about pride? For sake of time, I'm not going to read all these verses, but they're there for you if you need them. Pride promotes self and selfish agendas. Uh, This is the passage there in Jeremiah. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. You know the word glory there in Jeremiah is talking about boasting. It's talking about that area of pride. There's a story told about a woman who walked up to her pastor one day and said, after a sermon, and she said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. Um, I know this is a sin in my life. I just need to get it off my chest. I know it's wrong, and I need to talk to you about it. And the pastor's like, okay. He takes her to the front pew and sits down with her. People are talking, and he's like, well, what's going on? You know, what's going on in your life that's this serious? And the lady said, you know, I've been coming to this church for eight months, and I look around every service, and I see the other women And uh, I just know that I'm the most beautiful here. And I know that's a sin. I know that's prideful. And the pastor says, well, sister, that's not a sin. That's just a mistake. (laughs) Pride is when we promote self and selfish agendas. Pride is putting our own wills and wants above God's. Just like Adonijah did. Psalm 10 verse 4 says this, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Pride affects others around us. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised there is wisdom. And pride makes every situation worse. Proverbs 16.8, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride manifests itself in many ways. We think of it being overconfident about ourselves, but the reality is it comes out Uh, and is in multiple different forms. And when we begin to not put God first in our homes, individual lives, schools, and church, that's when we're struggling with pride. Maybe tonight you need to pray and ask God, Father, that you would seek Him more, that you would purpose daily to look to Him for your family, and that you would lead your family in Him because you need it. Maybe you need to pray tonight and say, man, I have started to compare myself with other families and people, and I have begun to uh, thinking that I or my family is something. Maybe you need to, uh, tonight, you need to pray, teenager, and say, my actions in my life show that I care more about me than God. And I think we all need to pray tonight that as we are in a period of transition at Eagle Heights, that it will not be me that Satan uses to stir division and discord. But daily, I'm going to take this matter to God so that we can get the right man God wants at Eagle Heights Baptist Church. Andrew Murray said this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Pride manifests itself in different ways, and I would love to stand here tonight and say that time in college with society president was the last time Pastor Joe struggled with pride, but my wife knows better. The fact of the matter is, I struggled today. I'll probably struggle tomorrow. Something we all have to work on. Maybe it is a teenager living for self or promoting self. Maybe it's a parent neglecting God in the household, a teacher going through, uh, or a pastor going through in your own strength without God, a senior saint uh, who has accumulated knowledge and wisdom over the years, yet God still says to be humble. You don't have all the answers, only God does. 
It manifests itself in different ways. We need to make sure, especially in vulnerable times, that we're allowing God to work and we're not standing in the way. We've heard a message already this past week about pride. This morning, Pastor talked about humble, humbleness and praise. I hate to beat us over the head with this, but I, I know I need it. And I know that if we're to move forward for the glory of God, each one of us is going to need it as well. So what are areas in our life we need to show more humility? What are areas in our life with our actions we're saying we know better than God? Adonijah's not a good example in 1 Kings. And our timeless truth tonight is that pride will destroy the work of God. Let's pray.